Well, yeah, thanks, Roger, for uh, taking this interview with me. Yeah. Um, you know, I've known you for more than a year now, I believe. Um, yeah, more than a year. And I always like to talk to patent lawyers because you guys see so many things, so many fun things, crazy ideas. And um, so I kind of want to dial the clock back a little bit, you know, the very beginning of how did you decide first to become a lawyer and then IP lawyer and now working very extensively in the 3D printing space? Right. Well, I've, uh, my career has been kind of in, I guess, it's a very interesting path, right? Um, as a child, I was always uh, a techie, always, always really one of those kids that, uh, you know, had a uh, popular mechanics, popular science magazines, uh, you know, sprawled around my room all the time, right? So I very early love for science. Um, and in, in some ways, I think like um, when I went to college, I, uh, my, I majored in toxicology with kind of an idea that I might go into life sciences. I wasn't sure where, either as a researcher, maybe a doctor, really didn't, uh, wasn't completely solidified at the time. Um, after I graduated, I was, um, you know, I did a stint, re-stint as a, as a chemist for a uh, research chemist for a couple of years and realized, hey, you know, I wasn't really sure the lab was really where I was cut out to be in. So um, moved on from there to, believe it or not, I was a drug rep for a very large pharmaceutical company, Sinosophia, Sinosophia Venice. Uh, I sold uh, cardiovascular and neurovascular drugs for, you know, for about a year. I also figured that sales wasn't really what I wanted to do either. So I did, then I did a, got my master's in engineering and uh, became an engineer. Uh, joined uh, Johnson & Johnson many, many years ago uh, in their blood glucose monitoring device division. Um, and uh, also got the, the bug, the itch to go consider law school at the time. What I was thinking about at the time was, was something a little different. I was actually thinking more towards uh, toxic torts, you know, more towards environmental law. Yeah. But one of the things, it was a really interesting thing that everybody's a little different about what gave me the spark. My spark to go into patent law really came out of an article that I read um, on US, on one of those uh, magazines, US News and World Reports about patent lawyers. And I read this article, it was like the most fascinating thing in terms of what they do, how they interact with inventors, and really always on the uh, leading edge of science, right? Which is kind of, to me, I was reading this, I was thinking, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. I've always wanted to be on the leading edge. I love to work with inventors and, and uh, folks that are kind of uh, um, embedding within this space. Uh, so decided to go to law school. I went to law school part-time, actually. I, I worked as an engineer at J Johnson Johnson full-time at the time. And, they paid for my law school. It was, it was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, it's an amazing company, by the way. To this day, my client, but but just beyond that, they they've uh, how do I say it? They've been in very important parts of my life all throughout. Um, and then graduated, became a joined uh, a big law firm like everybody else, and uh, started my career doing uh, prosecution more in the software space, not in this not in this area. I w I did it for about three years. I did some patent litigation, um, and I was a little disillusioned, to be honest. I really yeah. didn't want to do, at the time, I was handling a lot of software cases, a lot of uh, semiconductors, believe it or not, and areas weren't as interesting as I thought they would be. So after three years out as a, as a uh, you know, in private practice, I had an opportunity to join, um, at the time, the company's called Beatrogen, 
It became uh, Life Technologies, and then it was acquired by Thermo Fisher later on. But what attracted me to the company was um, I had read in another article about precision medicine, personalized medicine being one of the future, you know, long-term future for healthcare and, and, uh, and the medical scientists. And um, what Life Technologies or, or actually Beecham was doing at the time was they're putting together a team uh, to go ahead and put together what's called a, a, a genomic sequencing system platform. And with the idea that they would also build out software that would interpret genomic sequences and then try to use that information for uh, drug discovery, for uh, precision delivery medicine, things of that nature. And I thought, I thought it was completely fascinating, right? So um, decided to quit my, uh, my uh, outside counsel gig and went in-house. And I did that for eight years, really helping the company build portfolios around the genomic sequencing platforms, um, all the software that's used to interpret it, um, as well as I, you know, as, as I was in there for eight years, I, my responsibility kind of grew into handling bioreactors and a few, all these other interesting areas, right? So that's my first touch into some of 3D printing and 3D printing materials. It was really at that, at that level. Um, three and a half years ago, I decided to go back to private practice uh, with the idea I would go ahead and specialize in precision medicine, personalized precision medicine and digital health. And the primary reason I got into this is because, uh, again, I've been doing this for over 10 years in, in personalized medicine. I didn't really just fall into this. Um, I've been doing it on the genomic space. And then now coming back outside, um, one of my first clients was actually Johnson & Johnson. Um, they brought me in to go ahead and, and uh, do a series of uh, some very complex projects around 3D printing, uh, more towards their orthopedic business. And, um, and that grew into other relationships. Um, I, I, from the orthopedics 3D, 3D printing, which we, we handle more on the, with metals and, and uh, polymers, uh, went from there to uh, doing bioprinting, where we're dealing, dealing with tissue scaffolding and whatnot. So that relationship kind of grew out really in the last three years, starting off with the implant side and then moving on to the bioprinting side um, and got uh, connected with their, with the Johnson Johnson's uh, um, 3D printing center of excellence. And I guess I'm sort of the default uh, counsel right now, handling um, portfolios for that, for that division, right? Now, or for that unit uh, within J&J. Well, first of all, I want to make a remark that, Roger, I never knew, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but you look very young for all those years of experiences that you just mentioned. I'm a lot older than you realize. I'm actually 48. I'm actually oh, 40. my God. <laughs> okay, I need whatever you're taking. Yeah, I'll try to stay in decent shape, whatever, you know, and... Uh, Not to say 48 is old at all. Um, <laughs> but... Um, well, you know, it almost sounds like you had a career of a lawyer. That sounds like a roller coaster. I mean, it's very exciting. You're always seeing these constantly new things that never existed before. You know, some things yeah. like bioprinting or biofabrication. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, law is more of a risk aversion, you know, or risk mitigation kind of practice. You know, you want to avoid the, the too much excitement is not good. So. Yeah. In Unchattered waters, you know, things like 3D printing, bioprinting, you know, even genomics. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, you know, how should a startup approach the legal help? 
And that's a very good question. I mean, there's the way I see it, right, with startups is, you know, I think you do want to engage in good counsel. Good counsel meaning counsel has some breadth of understanding for what you're doing very early on because it really solves a lot of problems that kind of crop up later down down the road. And that's the thing, that's part and parcel why where I tell especially my startup clients, I think the biggest issues are the foundations that you set, not just in IP, but in other areas, how you go and form your company, uh, how you handle um, employee, employee issues, founder issues. These things all kind of, if you don't handle it right from the beginning, it ends up crop, cropping up later down the road. And, and it does one of two things. Either it costs you a lot, of, a lot more cash later on to try to fix down the road, or trips you up as a company as a whole, right? So I think the first thing, at least in the 3D printing space, which is, you know, on the on the life sciences tech side, is that you obviously want to get your IP straightened out because that is really a lot of ways your value to future investors beyond your seed stage investors, right? Anyone that's going to go ahead and, and uh, once you start raising in the five to ten or fifteen million uh, range in Series A, you don't have viable IP you don't have your IP story very straight now, it's extremely hard to get um, investors in the life sciences space. We're almost unique in that, in that sense. It's not like, for example, a social media startup or, a, uh, or a, an app startup where whether or not you have patents or not is not as important as maybe a, uh, how many subscribers you have or, or, or users. And this, in, in the life sciences space, and, uh, and in general, IP really dominates from a value perspective proposition. And you, you really want to go ahead and engage in counsel that doesn't understand just the technology, the base. I mean, frankly, you can find a lot of attorneys that kind of attorneys are going to stand in technology. It's really the business of how IP is used, how it's valued, how someone looks at it as an investor uh, when they're investing in you. Don't, you, want, you want a counsel that kind of understands all those, all those facets of it. Yeah, it sounds more like, you know, it's not just about the technology, but more of a, a holistic view of the whole yeah. company uh, when you work with companies, uh, as a, you know, startups. And now, I'm obviously a little bit biased because you're my friend. And <laughs> what differentiates a good patent lawyer from a not-so-good one? That's a good question, too. I mean, I think good ones, they have to understand your business. They really, and they take the time to understand your business. And they're not just sitting there, I mean, I think, uh, and they're not reactive. They're proactive, right? And, and I'll tell you how that, where that comes in, right? Reactive, it would be, you come to me as a patent attorney, you just tell me, you give me a bunch of uh, your slide decks and tell me, to, hey, here's an invention, draft an application for me. And then I'm reacting to you, you approaching me, and I'm going and draft something for you in return. Proactive is a different story. You are, I look further down the road. I help you build a plan on how you build your state out, where you file and where you file cost effectively, right? How do you, how do you plan for that? The other thing that proactive comes in, especially in companies that are doing um, acquiring IP or licensing IP from outside, you got to make sure that what you bring in, are you getting good terms on, right? They're not, you don't want to be, you know, it's the easiest thing for me to do as a patent attorney. Hey, you acquired that IP. I'll take over. Uh, oversight of prosecution, but that's just really part of the story. It's when you go ahead and license that, are you getting good terms on it? Are you being bound in a way that's very unfavorable to your company moving forward? You got to think three or two or three steps ahead uh, as to what the issues may be, and at least also 
how do you mitigate the financial impact of a lot of some of the moves that you do on the IP perspective? And that goes to what I was saying earlier, understanding your business model, understanding uh, how IP is leveraged, uh, understanding how IP portfolios evolve over time. Those are things that I think, honestly, not, a, not every patent attorney is very good at it. They're good at portions of it. Very few are good at pretty much the full spectrum. Yeah, I would echo, you know, in our community, you know, especially emerging technology communities like 3D printing, bioprinting, um, we still need a lot of guidance on how to find the best legal help. Uh, and I know that you're going to be presenting a lot of these information uh, during our conference in June, 3D Heals 2020. So I very much look forward to that. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, now that we're all quarantined at home, um, I, I think the outlook for two, you know, 2020 is now completely changed. Um, but I still would like you to just share some of your ambition and goals for the rest of the 2020. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think what I like to do for 2020 is really just work with the stable clients I have right now. I think I, I'm much less in trying to take more new clients rather than more towards uh, trying to service what the clients I have right now very well. I think a lot of them are going for a lot of different challenges. I mean, obviously, uh, funding for a lot of the startups has kind of dried up a bit, right? Which I, but I think that's going to be a temporary thing. I think as soon as this uh, the cloud lifts from COVID, you're going to see an immense amount of uh, funding going into life sciences and, and medical sciences in general, yeah. uh, because the NIH is going to be vastly differently funded by by the federal government. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, appetite for a lot of things medical related, which is that which is would be obvious given what, what few people have just experienced. Um, I think really what we're trying to do with our clients, what I try to do with them is that I try to go and let's, okay, we understand where, to, where your financial pressures are running from. How do we go ahead and adjust our strategy to meet those challenges right now? Because there are strategies to do it, right? And then you don't have to go all in and, and spend, you know, a ton of money up front just to get a position for yourself. There's ways there's, I guess I wouldn't say shortcuts, but there are ways to do the same thing short of that and still protect and still give you some runway to go and ride this situation out, right? And the other thing that comes in is um, now you, you're beginning to hear, right, um, in this environment, uh, things about marching, government marching rights, um, government compulsory licensing of IP for certain inventions. A lot of these things never used to be has never been used before, these, these concepts. They existed in the law. So, and some of it relates to how you set up your company. What about you take federal grants when you go ahead and set up your company uh, and generate your IP? Um, those things have to be considered. Whereas before, I think the default uh, answer would be, hey, the government's never exercised these rights in the past. So I don't mind taking government money and then have the, having the risk that they're gonna, they're gonna go ahead and march in and, and, and uh, for example, assert themselves over my IP. Well, now, as we can see, um, extraordinary events happen. And when they do, the government reacts in a very un, unpredictable way. So that goes back again to what I was saying about being proactive about how you strategize, how you adjust and develop IP, and what that means later on down the road, where you take your funding sources from, what does that mean to you five years from now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're definitely in a historic moment um, you know, I think I read it somewhere saying that we're now in, in a TV show yeah. and we're all participants of this TV yeah. show and we're going to participate till the end. And I certainly hope that the funding uh, 
problems that a lot of these life science startups are facing uh, can be solved after that we learned that there's nothing more important than life and yeah. health. Uh, so I certainly hope the funding process can be improved and, you know, the companies will meet with less obstacles. Yeah, um, I expect it. I think that's what's going to happen. I really do. Because, again, I, I, I mean, the, the, these, you know, everyone's scared. I mean, because of what's, what's just occurred, right? And I think, and rightfully so, really. And I think uh, a, a lot of the, um, the investment community's appetite right now is going to be, again, more, more towards health and wellness. Anything that's health and wellness is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be uniquely positioned to go ahead and uh, take advantage of a lot of this, this rebound that's going to come after this, after this emergency is over. Well, the other interesting thing is uh, we just had a couple of webinars talking about creating, you know, various medical devices to cope with the COVID-19 crisis. Um, but I think it is also a moment during this crisis. There are a lot of creativities coming up. And I think we will actually see a lot of interesting, you know, patent-related stories yeah. perhaps after this event is over. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm more than happy to have another conversation with you perhaps on our podcast, uh, future events to talk more about IP and 3D printing. Yeah, we'd love to. Well, thank you very much, Roger. And I look forward to your June presentation. Likewise, thanks, Jenny. Thanks.